Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Anthony Cosenzi with me, who has written all sorts of brilliant books on short-term paper. Is it Stigums? I've always had trouble pronouncing it. Stigums Money Market Which from is, the 1970s it, that I rewrote. Yeah. Uh, it's 1,200 pages. I put in about 500 new pages myself. Updated. 200 it, yeah. charts. Correct. <clears throat> yeah. It, it's like the Bible of short-term paper. Correct. When you see volatility across all asset classes so dampened, witness the equity SPX VIX indicator going well under 10, record 24-year lows. What does it say about the, the machinery, the engine of our finance? I connect it to uh, productivity and inflation, and they are linked. Um, mm -hmm. the productivity because of a lack of investment by U.S. government and low inflation because it means central banks, well, they can't move their policy rates much because they know the fiscal authorities aren't doing much to promote economic growth, which is languishing globally in part because of giant social safety nets and promises made to future generations generations ago, monies that today can't be spent on, say, let's say, education or infrastructure, things that would power economic growth. One quick example here in New York, uh, Penn Station, uh, the busiest train station in the country, <coughs> is under construction now until September 1st. It's very difficult for people in New Jersey to get through this one tunnel. It got clogged a month or so ago because of a derailment. I was stuck in it for five hours. Um, so I couldn't be productive that day. with your power, day. you couldn't now one couldn't Governor move. Christie to get it fixed? You couldn't walk off the Governor train. Cuomo. And so for five hours, I was unproductive. What they've wanted for decades is a second tunnel. And this is only New York, and there are many, many cases like this, Not maybe as, perhaps not yeah. as large, but ways to make people move around faster to do things better well, that we're not doing. I mean, I, everybody knows with your accent, you got to be from someplace south like Staten Island. <laughs> and the idea of the Staten Island and the Ferry, name Tony. 1817. This, I mean, something as basic as the Staten Island yeah. Ferry, well, you know. Or this, the 1964, <clears throat> the year I entered the world, uh, the, the Verrazano Bridge was built, connecting Brooklyn to Staten Island. It was the biggest suspension bridge in the world at that Could time. Could we build that today? Well, here's well, here's what happened, though, in terms of how, how government spending can help growth. Staten Island became the fastest growing county in the country, uh, at that, I'm sorry, in, the, in New York, for 30 years straight. Because of that bridge, because it it made it easier for people, since it is an island, to to get to Staten Island to to uh, build homes and, of course, uh, grow families well, and grow businesses. So the word you used before, Tony Cosenzi, which is so important, and it's it's, it's I, this is why we love having you on. You. It's a behavior word: languish. We languish. 
Are we raising rates into a languishing economy, or are we getting rates up just to get back to normal while we languish? There's a big difference there. We are raising rates into a languishing economy, and the question has become of late, is the Federal Reserve over-tightening? Should it be tightening? And perhaps uh, given that the the so-called Phillips curve, the idea that there's a relationship between low unemployment and higher inflation, may not exist. And so there has become a question about whether the Fed's overdoing it. Where is this question? In tips, the inflation-protected securities. What do you see there? The market's price for the consumer price index to be at one and three quarter percent over the next 10 years, roughly where it is now. In other words, the market's saying the Federal Reserve, despite all its efforts, won't be able to promote Should Janet Yellen listen to that series or not? Well, it's not not just that. It's also the U.S. dollar has weakened and yields have fallen, which are all signals that perhaps – and I've left out the biggest indicator, the yield curve. It's flattening, which is to say as the Fed pushes short-term interest rates up, longer-term interest rates relative to those have fallen. So the difference in yield has shrunk which is a way of saying that long-term investors think that ultimately inflation may decline or since long-term rates are cumulative bets on where short-term rates will be in the future, that perhaps okay. the Fed will have to reverse its rate hikes. But is it, Tony, is anybody at the Fed, the PhDs, have they read Stigums? I mean, have they read the 1,200-page tome that you, you wrote? Yes, I mean, and this is the problem, as some would say. Um, some could say and argue that those who are constructing policy today and the Fed staffers, the 200 PhDs there, that the the religion they've got is to bygone, a bygone era. So the so-called Phillips curve developed in the late 1950s, uh, this idea of relationship between unemployment and inflation, perhaps it was simply a product of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and perhaps not even the 90s. Right. And we should ignore it and look back to a period of 1850 to 1950 when there seemed to be no Phillips okay, curve. Okay, but when you say this to Scott Mather or anybody else at PIMCO, I mean, you go in there as the stud of short-term interest rates. I've never heard you talk more about fiscal about fiscal dynamics as you are now. How does PIMCO adjust their thinking? Do they go to a we low rate talk about this regime or do. a la Game of Thrones inflation is coming? PIMCO three years baloney. ago. Well, we developed what we call – first, we have this new, new normal concept, the idea that economic growth would be slower than historical averages. Then three years ago, we developed a new neutral concept, the idea that – the neutral policy rate, where the Fed's neither pressing on the gas or the brake, is lower than historical averages. And so we've been looking at that. And each year we test it at our secular forums. And this year we talked with, uh, in, in Newport Beach, Larry Summers, for example, Newt Gingrich. So we look at fiscal matters. And also Gene Sperling, former head of the National Economic Council, numerous others that can help us to discern uh, the outlook on fiscal policy. And even had a conversation recently with John Boehner, the former House Speaker. We but want to know to where it's headed. But you have to shift all that because of what we see when Greg Vallier and Kevin Sur- early on this morning, do you shift everything? We can't even get health care going. We do follow it extraordinarily closely because we knew this year in 2017 that the markets were thinking about the possibility of a of a sea change in fiscal policy. Didn't there might happen. be more fiscal spending. didn't happen. We don't expect much to happen next year either. It'll happen most likely, tax, some form of okay. tax cuts, but it won't be large. I wanted to distill this. transformation. Uh, I, I want to distill this with Tony Cosenzi because I think it's so important. How, you know, the rate increase parlor game, which folks, as you all know, I try to avoid like crazy. I'm going to do it right now with the best guy in the block. One rate increase, 
three rate increases? Go out to 2019. One more this year is probable. Okay, one it's more this probably year. probably December, but if there's an inflation wow. uptick, which we wouldn't expect, it, okay, it could fine. be September. What, but the what next about year, the up to three, yeah. two to three. But think about this, though. We'd be squabbling if I'm wrong, uh, if we're wrong, and it's two and it's not three, uh, tiny amounts. Of course, the Fed in the past would move rates by significant amounts. And what we expect, and the more important idea is that the new neutral concept means that the the terminal rate, where the Fed ends its policy regime, will probably be somewhere in the twos. Now, the tenure of the past two cycles didn't trade much in yield above where that terminal rate was. In other words, if the Fed's policy rate is going to go no higher than right. two and a half, then the 10-year <clears throat> yield shouldn't be much higher okay. than that, maybe We're, this towards three We've got about so eight year. things to talk about with Tony Crescenzi. We'll come back, I think, on the terminal yield. You know, we kid about inflation is coming. And for those of you that don't follow Game of Thrones, it's a playoff. This idea of winter is coming, which is sort of the theme, if you will, of the mythology of uh, the Game of Thrones. We're going to come back on the mythology of Cherry Ellen. Will that mythology change next year when we may still be waiting to see if inflation is coming? Not to spoil anything, but Jamie Lannister just walked in. <laughs> David Gurra uh, with us. Right? The difference, David, is I stood up and watched all of Game of Thrones. You, you all, stayed yeah. up and watched the fir- the new edition of Game of Thrones, and then you watched all of season six last night. <laughs> Two in the morning, right? I was going to blame it on the wagon train back from Idaho, but yes, yeah. there you go. We're on good Happy behavior. To be here. Mr. Gurra and I are on good behavior this morning. We're not spoiling <laughs> no Game spoilers. of Thrones, particularly for our London audience. Good morning, London Radio. Uh, as well, where you got it at 2 a.m., so many of you. Boy, did we, you should have seen the emails and put Mr. Keene in his place, yeah. David. Do not give away. <laughs> and what I will say is it's beautifully shot. There are beautiful, beautiful You scenes. watched it. I didn't realize yes. you were a fan. Oh, no, a huge fan. A huge, I just think it's, it was like X-Files, and then I waited 10 years for something else to interest me. <laughs> Finally, there it is. He was in X Files season three. Tony Cosenzi with us uh, with Pimco. Let's rip up the script, Tony. Uh, <laughs> we have and it already. <laughs> Fer- Ferdinando uh, Giuliano with Bloomberg View has a spectacular op-ed today on Milton Friedman, and on Olivia Blanchard, who's a huge friend of the program, making a very thoughtful analysis of modern Friedman theory, like Nehru and and all that. And the basic idea is they thought all this stuff up years ago, Ned Phelps, John Taylor, and others. And the answer is it doesn't seem to work when things get bad. Does Nehru's theory work when things get bad and rates go down? This is something we don't know. And the Federal Reserve is experimenting with. And this is why it's making the case for moving gradually, because it doesn't know whether this relationship between the unemployment rate and inflation exists. And last week, that's how Chair Yellen moved the market. But Milton Friedman, I was looking back at something called the Great Debate from the late 1960s between Milton Friedman, Tobin, Samuelson, and others. Um, He tried to say um, what... Policy. He tried to make the case as to what monetary policy can and can't do. The, the two cans and the three cans are the cans are that it can prevent money. I'm oh, sorry. The, what it can do, the three cans, is it can prevent money itself from being a major source of disruption. Think yeah, uh, okay. about uh, the yeah, l- yeah, drop yeah. in money supply from 1929 yeah. to 33, as he referenced. Yeah. It fell a third. He said that's why there was the Great Depression. Secondly, it, it can keep mon- keep uh, offsets can offset disturbances, and it can uh, provide a background uh, for the economy, keep it well-oiled. What it can't do is peg interest rates and peg unemployment. 
why peg interest rates? He said he referred to 19, the 1950s and the Treasury Court of 1951, where after a period where the Fed did peg interest rates, it said it couldn't. And he's as he okay. says, central bank after central bank globally realized they couldn't do that because inflation ultimately okay. picks up. But you and I have had a fabulous day talking about the 50s and Eisenhower. Our parents used to drive across the country when it was one third of an interstate and all that. I mean, Gura just takes it for granted that there's a full interstate out there. He, you know, he thought the Verrazano Bridge was there when so Verrazano now, yeah. came into the harbor. <laughs> but, but Tony, the, the idea here is those old theories don't work in a new global economy. The slew rates are too quick. The financial system is too integrated. That's, right. That's what Olivier Blanchard's dealing right. with. We, we met with Mr. Blanchard in Pim- at PIMCO's uh, office in Newport Beach over a year ago, and we were talking about productivity in, in this context, and he was somewhat optimistic it could pick up, but not significantly. And this is the problem with yeah. the country. The nation's resources are allocated toward areas that uh, aren't. Um, positive for the long-term well, growth of the economy. I just want to point out, David Gura, that John Snow met with mm. PIMCO. He was at the Secular Forum. He was at the well. Secular <laughs> Forum. They got everybody at PIMCO. John Snow showed up. We draw on every resource we can. Tony, for a while we heard uh, Janet Yellen talk about hysteresis. To what extent is she, to what extent are other central bankers concerned about it right now? Well, you see in the, in Japan, they're yeah. certainly worried about it. And uh, we know that Prime Minister Abe and others there worry about the decline in the population. It's at 126 million persons. It's fallen a half million people just the last few years or so. And it's expected potentially to go to under 100 million by the year 2050. Faced with a decline in population growth, how then can Japan grow rapidly? Mm-hmm. It can't. The fact that it has any growth at all is impressive. Europe faces a similar but not as bad a problem on the demographic front. The United States, better, but not great. The population growing slowly and the labor force, more importantly, growing at only a half percent per year, historically growing at one. So in terms of hysteresis, factors that can cause it can include the demographic issue, can also include credit growth, which has slowed globally in part because of efforts by regulators to slow it down. But productivity, in the end, is at the heart of it, and that requires governments to pivot away from monetary policy toward fiscal policy and to do more on the investment front. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. a great day. Thanks so much. Uh, Tony Cosenzi of Staten Island and PIMCO (laughs) is, well, with our history lesson earlier on the Staten Island Ferry and such. Now on our phone lines, one Greg Vallier of Horizon Investments, somebody on whom uh, we rely for regular updates on what's going on uh, in Washington, D.C. And, uh, Greg, great to have you with us this morning. It's, it seems prudent for us to start with the state of play on health care. We wish Senator McCain uh, the best. He's, by all accounts, re- reportedly recovering from some surgery on a uh, blood clot above his left eye in Arizona, and that's caused a delay in this whole uh, process. While we pass along our, our good wishes to the senator, what does that mean for the process going forward, Greg? Well, nothing good, David. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I have thought for a while that John McCain is a giant among pygmies in the Senate, and uh, he will be missed for the next few weeks. Uh, there's a story in this morning's New York Times quoting brain surgeons who uh, worry this could be more ominous. Uh, what caused this? How long will it take for him to recover? So to go to your question, I think that the health care process, which already was looking pretty doubtful, 
uh, has suffered perhaps a fatal blow. Senator McCain is uh, 80 years old, I'll, I'll point out, and uh, it is indeed a good piece that you point to uh, on the New York Times. I'll, I'll flag that and put it out uh, on Twitter. What are we waiting for at this point? Uh, a CBO score that was, uh, by some accounts, uh, expected to come out today. That's been delayed, uh, I gather. What, what's uh, Leader McConnell doing at this point now in terms of trying to get his colleagues on the Republican side to come on board with him? I think he's got the fear, David, that the score will not be good. It'll show, you know, millions of people perhaps losing Medicaid coverage. So I think McCain has to realize he does not have the votes. Uh, this may drag into the fall, and the agenda in the fall is so incredibly crowded. It's going to be pretty tough to get a health care bill done. Greg, uh, adults are entering the, the room. Uh, Ty Cobb, not the baseball player, the attorney with Hogan Lovells is one of them. Is there any indication within your reporting and your study that the president will listen to adults or is there going to be a real tension point literally within the next 24 hours when he goes no to their good requests? Well, Tom, he seems to have problems with his attorneys. They don't last very long. So we'll, we'll see with the, the current team. You know, you could make a case that he had a good meeting to Paris. I thought that went quite well. Uh, there haven't been any huge blow-ups in the last few days. Maybe he could have a fairly good stretch. But we wake up every morning wondering what's going to be in the Washington Post or the New York Times. Is, are there more revelations to come? Craig, after a weekend uh, in Bedminster at his, his resort there, uh, Donald Trump tweeting, heading back to Washington, D.C., much will be accomplished this week on trade, the military, and security. Should I read anything into that, the fact that health care is not among those uh, things mentioned? I think he's got to know, David, that it's stalled. It's stalled for probably several weeks, so there are other issues. He's going to talk today about Buy America, somewhat ironic since many of his products are not made in this country. But if he can stay on message, I do think there are some issues where he can get traction. Well, wait a minute. Has he stayed on message? I mean, I'm going to say he did in Warsaw. He did a pretty good job in Warsaw, and then... Uh, G20, depending on who you talk to, their view was different. But, Greg, I, I don't understand where who he's listening to in the family or within the White House. Who's this guy listening to? Yeah, Is know, it going to be Ty Cobb? Yeah, with all presidents... Tom, it, it, there's an adoring echo chamber that they listen to, and they perhaps don't realize that some issues uh, need uh, serious attention right away. So I think that's a problem for him. He, he, he probably listens to a very narrow circle. His children uh, are you know, loyal advisors, but I don't think he listens to enough people, certainly yeah. not enough people from Capitol Hill. That's the way. Well, let's come back with Greg Villa. David, girl, that's the way Bloomberg surveillance is. We live, you and I live in an echo chamber, <laughs> an adoring echo chamber. Literally 10 feet by 10 feet. <laughs> Rachel was, was, was. Adoring and echo chambering this morning. Very good. One Greg Vallier of Horizon Investments joining us from Washington, D.C., as he often does. Greg, let me ask you uh, here about uh, where things stand when it comes to tax reform. Are we able to have a conversation about it? Are politicians able to have a conversation about it until we uh, surmount this health care hurdle? Well, there's been some progress, Dave, in uh, behind the scenes. Uh, Mnuchin has met with uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady and a lot of the other big players. I, I think they're getting closer to a consensus on what they want. Is, is it just reform? Is it just tax cuts? So they're making some progress. Hopefully in the fall, the House Ways and Means Committee will start marking up a bill. But all of these other impediments, health care, getting a budget done, make it really unlikely that we can get a tax bill done this year. 
Let me ask you about uh, the, the trips that the president has taken abroad uh, recently. I don't think you and I have spoken since the, the G20 summit uh, in Hamburg. Of course, the president was in uh, Paris last week at the invitation of the new French president. What does that tell us about the way that he's uh, approaching foreign policy, uh, his two recent trips to Europe? Well, I'd give him credit for evolving. Uh, he said a lot of harsh things about the city of Paris during the campaign, but he's changed. And I think, you know, there's, a, there's candidates and then there are presidents. And I think Trump is, you know, maybe not smoothly morphing, but he is morphing toward being a president rather than a, a strident candidate. Is his, is his outlook changing? Is his willingness to engage with foreign leaders changing? Is his policy changing at low these seven months here into to well, his administration? Let, let's see. That's a good question. Let's see this week. I think there's probably going to be a lot of talk about NAFTA. Is he willing to take on Canada and Mexico? There will be lots of talk coming up about immigration policy. So we'll see. I think his rhetoric with someone like Macron is encouraging, but I think we've yes. got to look at the policies. I'll go with that. The rhetoric's there, but then he has spokespeople, spokespersons, spokeswomen, yeah. staff members, etc. Greg, you and I talked about this earlier this morning. When does he start knocking people's heads together and get adults in there like the announcement of Mr. Cobb, the attorney? Well, hopefully that will come. Hopefully he realizes he needs a lot more talent uh, around him. Um, I think he needs to listen to more people. We talked about that earlier uh, today. I think he's got to widen his circle of, of advisors. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, agree, I'll take your point that this is less about the people involved and that he doesn't have a pool to pick from because do you observe, Greg Vallier, that he demands perfect loyalty? Loyalty is the only litmus test for this executive? And it's not reciprocated. That's a key point, Tom. So I, I think that a, a lot of people who might be toying with the idea of joining this administration realize he's not easy to work for. Uh, and I think that's an impediment for him. Greg, go ahead. Go ahead. <clears throat> Greg Vallier with us. Let me set this up, uh, David Gurr, if I could. Greg Vallier with us with a VIX 9.83. Green on the screen. Futures up two. Dow futures up 14. David, I interrupted you because of that rattlesnake bow tie. Yeah, you brought me back from Idaho. Greg, he brought me back a rattlesnake skin Idaho bow tie. It smells. It's so disgusting. I dare you to. I dare you to wear it on air. Oh, Oh, we'll see. We'll see if I can convince him. Greg, let me ask you about the the obsession with palace intrigue here. This has been a a White House that has been closely watched. Last week, there was speculation that Gary Cohn might be in the running to be the next Fed chair. There's a lot of reporting here that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now going to take over the responsibilities that Sean Spicer has had. Is that a problem for this White House, the constant drumroll of, of, uh, drumbeat rather, of, of speculation about who might be doing what? Yeah, it's a problem. It's sort of like Game of Thrones. You've got to wonder who's up, who's down. There's lots of uh, intrigue. But I, I would point out one very important factor for investors, and that is the fundamentals still look great. And whether it's the unemployment rate or low inflation or pretty steady interest rates, good corporate earnings, I mean, uh, it's very tempting for all of us to look at these distractions, yeah. which, which are significant. But you can't miss the forest, and the forest still looks damn good. The forest from Westeros looks like winter is coming. <laughs> oh, it's Greg, perennially coming. Greg, I mean, help me here right. with the moderates and the Republican in the House. Their yep. winter is here. That's all there is to it. How do they respond to a decade-long shift to a conservative Republican Party? 
Well, I think they've got to respond by not reacting to every tweet. They've got to respond by getting their act together and passing things. They've got to work on a budget that both houses can agree on. Can Paul Ryan do that, or is Paul Ryan the new John Boehner, and John Boehner's above the wall with a walking dead? (laughs) No, I, I think Ryan can get a budget done. I think Ryan can get tax reform done. And I think that's what a lot of these Republicans have to do. Look the other way with the tweets and get to work on all of these key issues. I, David Gurr, I'm trying to get my head around uh, around the the, the the Death Walkers, whatever they're called, uh, above the wall with John Boehner in orange. It just doesn't work. I can't get there. Greg, what did uh, what did Speaker Ryan, what did Leader McConnell, what did their their colleagues learn over that Fourth of July uh, recess? They went back. They heard from constituents about health care and and more. What's your sense of the way the the political landscape shifted after that recess? Well, look, I think that health care is an albatross for whichever party is in power. Nobody's happy. Everyone's disappointed about health care. So they, they know that. I think the surprise in the last two or three weeks is that public attitudes about the economy have picked up a bit. That's an important thing that a lot of Republicans, I think, are pleased to see. Do you think that that's going to continue? What, what do you think is, is driving that? Is it driving it because it seems like <clears throat> some, some source of stability here amidst a lot of chaos? Yeah, and I think real disposable income looks great. Yeah. I mean, you've got low inflation. You've got wages yeah. starting to pick up. People have got a little bit extra money in their pockets. Gasoline prices are low. So it, it's inevitable that consumer confidence will do better, despite all the tweets but, and Russia. Yep. Before we let you go, Greg, critically, that good news about the economy, will that allow the non-core Trump supporters to maintain support for the president? Is that enough for them to rationalize continued support. We don't see that in the big poll over the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem for Trump is that he's at 35, 38, maybe 40 percent <clears throat> approval. That's yeah. generous. You know, it's, it's, it's enough, but it, it's a problem for him. And if he loses another few points, he's going to lose a lot of political yeah. capital. Greg, thank you so much. A terrific briefing. And again, thank you again for your clarity on the the life and career of Senator McCain. He's in grievous surgery in Arizona, reported by the New York Times this morning. And our thoughts go out to all of Arizona. Senator McCain, Greg Villiers with Horizon Investors. Surveillance correction. If I say anything wrong, David Gura, about Game of Thrones... (sighs) Hundreds of emails. <laughs> I said The Walking Dead. That's another show. Another show. Death, Death Walkers. The White Walkers. White Walkers. The White Walkers are the bad people. Shows where I am. Yes. And I'm not going to give away any White Walkers from last night. But <laughs> thank you for all of you, particularly in England, listening on Game of Thrones. We're dazzled uh, yeah. by uh, your knowledge and my lack. Uh, they're uh, watching it on mute with surveillance <clears throat> turned up. That's Boy, what they're that doing. Yeah. No, no. You don't watch it on uh, mute. <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. We have an esteemed guest this morning, and let me get everybody to focus. He has a book out. It's like Mao's book. It's a little red book. (laughs) Prescription for the future, except he's actually talking about something we can actually get done, unlike the former grade of China. In a guy named Levitt, secretary of HHS, vintage GOP 
says, shut up and read this book. David, that's all you need to know. Levitt of the other party says, just shut up and read Emmanuel. <laughs> Tom paraphrasing. <laughs> Secretary Levitt, who I've never heard out of the words, shut up. Uh, Zeke Emanuel, thank you very much for joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. I don't think I've ever had an introduction like that in my well, life. Well, I'm in an ornery. It's yeah. great. You, you know, Zeke, you look like one of the guys on, on the wall for Game of Thrones. I oh. mean, you look you're that grizzled after what you've been through. Go ahead, David. And it continues. Uh, Zeke, I just got back from this uh, this Allen Company conference in Sun Valley, and I talked to Dr. Toby Cosgrove there of the of the Cleveland Clinic, and he said something that's still ringing through my head. He said, in order for there to be real progress on health policy reform in this country, this particular bill before the Senate uh, has to die. Uh, stark terms there, a stark reading of what's going on legislatively. Do you agree with him? Are, are we being held up by the politics here? Uh, as usual, Toby and I are on the same page yep. about this. Uh, this bill does nothing to advance health care on any dimension, not the access dimension, not the cost control dimension, and not the quality dimension. And I agree it needs to be defeated. And I would say for your uh, listeners, especially with the Cruz Amendment in it, which totally undermines uh, insurance markets. Uh, so it has to you know, be defeated. And then we need to move on to, well, how do we shore up the exchanges? How do we uh, actually get health care costs under control so that we can keep health premiums and, and the deductibles uh, more under control? How beholden to insurance, to the insurance system, to insurance companies uh, is progress on health policy? In other words, can, can you advance health policy? Can you make changes to the way health care is uh, administered in this country with, without having to deal with the insurance companies? No, because they control about 40% of uh, the uh, market in various ways, um, and you want them on board. Uh, one of the things insurance companies can do is they can experiment a little easier than the federal government in some cases. Uh, they can push out to commercial uh, payers and employers to get them to do things uh, with big dollars behind it. Um, and I'd say that the most important thing we want the private insurers to do besides get into markets and stay in markets uh, through the exchange is we want them to pay doctors and hospitals differently so that they uh, move off the fee-for-service system. Uh, if you ask me what's one key catalytic lever we can use to actually get ourselves to a more high-performing healthcare system, it's uh, paid differently. And we have to incentivize doing the right thing, getting rid of unnecessary care, making care more efficient. And uh, unfortunately, at the moment, that's not where the incentives drive. Uh, we have had, over the last seven years since passage of the Affordable Care Act, movement towards paying differently, paying capitation, paying financial incentives for keeping costs down, mm. paying bundled payments. Uh, I keep saying, that's got to be turbocharged. If you really want to get us into a sustainable economic path for the healthcare system, we have to turbocharge that payment change. Every time I, I sit down with an insurance executive, if that's Mark Bertolini or Michael Nydorf, and talk about the future of healthcare, they've got a lot of great plans for how policy could change. When we talk about uncertainty, is that affecting the way insurance companies are uh, implementing uh, new changes to healthcare? Absolutely. You know, insurance companies are, by definition, risk-averse. Uh, and uh, the, anytime there's uncertainty, it means that there's more risk, and they therefore raise their premiums. They stop doing uh, innovative plans. Uh, I think one of the reasons we saw a burst of uh, a lot of experimentation by them and uh, movement into new uh, products was the Affordable Care Act. Suddenly they could see, wow, we might get 15 million more people. We'll have an organized marketplace where we can compete knowing yeah. the rules. Um, and that's all 
you know, one of the reasons we have a big jump in premiums uh, this last uh, couple of years has been uncertainty in yeah. that marketplace. Uh, if you gave them certainty, and uh, by that certainty, I mean some reinsurance or risk corridor so that if they got a disproportionate number of sick mm-hmm. people, they would be protected. If you guaranteed them the cost-sharing subsidy, so pay families under $70,000 or <clears throat> so actually would have help paying the deductibles and yeah. co-pays, that kind of certainty uh, actually brings mm-hmm. premiums down, uh, amazingly enough, and yeah. uh, allows them to do things that they wouldn't have tried before. Yeah. Dr. Emanuel, I, I want to take this back to what I witness right now across both aisles, and that is an immense nostalgia for what we knew. I was beyond fortunate to have Richard Meltzer as my pediatrician, huh. who was legendary at yeah. Strong Rochester, and then with Project Hope with his wife, Amy Meltzer. And, and you know, I, I grew up in the nirvana of pediatrics. That's what everybody wants to get back to. We can't go back there, can we? Uh, I'm not actually sure uh, I agree with you. A lot of what I'm seeing is uh, what I like to call back to the future. Uh, back, you know, what, what has really worked because uh, a lot of the expenses are concentrated in 10% of the population is actually more high touch, more you know, Marcus Welby tried care for those patients. Yeah. A lot of the uh, innovations that I portray in the book are precisely about how do you personalize care? How does the doctor not just wait for the patient to show up, but reach out to the doctor and say, you know, what's going on? Are you taking those medications? And maintaining contact, educating the, them, working with them on okay, their fine. behavior. Change. Where does the money come from to give us Dr. Welby? Okay, so here's the secret, uh, Tom. Uh, Look, if we actually get these people with chronic illness and keep them healthier, keep them out of the hospital, you spend money up front and then reduce emergency room use, reduce hospitalization, reduce need to go to nursing facilities, that's the trade-off you're going to see. So money flows from lowering the hospitalization rate and increasing the Uh, services that doctors, uh, home health care agencies, care coordinators provide. And that's the trade-off. And places that, as I document in my book, places that have really hit it out of the park on this, care more in uh, California uh, as a good example, you know, they can reduce their hospitalization rate 40% below uh, the comparable people in their uh, marketplace. That's a lot of dollars to save. Uh, now, obviously, hospitals are going to be resistant to that, um, but I think that's the kind of trade-off the whole mm-hmm. system needs, um, and we don't need hospitals running at 50 60% occupancy, um, having to do a lot of things to uh, make money and stay afloat. Very quickly here, what are you going to be looking for in that CBO report? We've got about 30 seconds. Anything in there that, uh, that could yeah, change well, your, your sense of it? I think there are two important things. How many uninsured are you going to get? We know that the bottom is 15 million people. That's the number of people that get thrown off of Medicaid. So it's anywhere between 15 million and 24 million, and that is a big question. And then what do they anticipate the Cruise Amendment will do in terms of uh, making okay. the uh, market, insurance market unstable? Yeah. Um, and I think those are the two big things to look at. We got to leave it there, Zeke Emanuel. Thank you so much. The book, Prescription uh, for the Future, with bipartisan shout out to read. Prescription for the Future from Dr. Emanuel.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.